0: 7 Radio Network welcomes Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes, heard every Monday at 11 a.m. and 11 p.m. Eastern Time. Using nearly 200 years of abundant and consistent afterlife evidence, quantum physics, consciousness research, and ancient writings, we seek to understand who and what we are, how reality works, the nature of God, and the meaning and purpose of our lives join roberta weekly to better understand our one reality and gain insights into how we can make the most of the glorious eternal beings that we are welcome to seek reality with roberta grimes joyous conversations about what the afterlife evidence in modern science combine to tell us is true about our one reality you have nothing to fear. You are eternal and you are perfectly loved. Knowing the truth changes everything. Now, here's Roberta.
1: Welcome to Seek Reality. I'm Roberta Grimes and I'm so happy you're with us today. My dear friends, today we have two genuine celebrities as our guests. You're not going to believe this. Raymond Moody is joining us for the second time and not only Did Dr. Moody coin the term near-death experiences? It's been almost 50 years now. But very much later, he also coined the term shared death experience, believe it or not. And more than that, Dr. Moody is like the nicest person you have ever met. Mm -hmm. And joining him today is Paul Perry, and he, he of The Silver Pen. He is the reason Dr. Moody's books are so easy and so delightful to read. The best reported near-death experiences provide us with some of the surest evidence that our minds can easily exist apart from our bodies. And that's all we needed to know to know that we, in fact, do survive death. When we combine the best near-death experiences that we have received over the past 50 years, with a great volume of meticulously studied afterlife communications that we've received through the greatest deep trance mediums, especially those received in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, like Gladys Osborne Leonard, anyone? Just those two bodies of evidence all by themselves Prove not only that we do survive our deaths, but they give us the best details of what the afterlife is like and that those two bodies of evidence alone should be known by everybody now and we would all know that we live eternally in the most beautiful place you can imagine. But sadly, still almost 90% of the people in the world are still afraid to die. And so our wonderful, beautiful friends, Raymond Moody and Paul Perry, have set out to remedy that problem, and they are doing it in style with a beautiful, wonderful book. Their new book is called Proof of Life After Life, Seven Reasons to Believe There is an Afterlife, and this book nails it. Their seven proofs are very well chosen, they're powerful. And it's true of all the books that they write together. I can recommend their new book to you without any reservation. Everybody can read it. Everybody can understand it. It's just a wonderful book. In fact, we're starting a little late doing this, doing this taping just because I had to finish the book before I could even, even come on with them. Their book is conservative. In fact, I think it's a little too conservative for my taste, but that's what they should do because they're they're trying to convince you of something which is obvious and which is true. At the same time, the truth is overwhelming, and the reality of your eternal life is beyond dispute. We'll go through these proofs with them and talk about why they're so critically important now to building the case for your own eternal survival. Raymond and Paul, welcome. Thank you so much for writing this book, which was so needed now. It is so, so good to have you with us today.
2: Thank you, Roberta. Thank you very much,. Roberta. It's good seeing you again too.
1: It is we were one of the reasons we started a little late too, doing this taping is that we were reminiscing about a long time ago, we had dinner together at some conference or other. we don't remember where or when, but so we just couldn't stop talking, and finally, our our wonderful Sam, our engineer, who kind of keeps us all honest, said, we had to get started taping, so here we are okay. Raven, this is a great book. I hope everybody Thank reads you so much. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, the thing is that it, in order for us to really believe it, we have to know first some of the things that are in this book. Yeah. And and people people don't know this stuff. Um and it's unfortunate. I, I've known all of this stuff for a long time. And so when I saw what you were using for proofs, I said, Oh well, this is all gonna be easy. I don't even have to read the book. And then I started reading it and I said, Oh my god, I you went back into some of the early, early stuff And you pulled out these proofs And you went through them Which to me was the right way to do it But it took you a lot of time to do this And to dig up all this stuff Thank you for that Thank you Well, we've
2: been working on this a long time uh,
1: I can see and,
2: that <laughs> yeah, as, as you know, uh, Roberta i I mean, I've been working on this for 50 years and i i I am known as more as a medical doctor and psychiatrist but before that i got a phd in philosophy and i was a philosophy professor and specifically uh, logic was one of my main specialties and um you know coming from that background then my book life after life was published just as i graduated from medical school but um so beginning when I started investigating these things back at East Carolina University in 69, to 72, I was talking to people. And um, ever since then, since I've developed a reputation for um, for th- these kinds of experiences, near-death experiences and so on, it recurrently, people over the years asked me, Raymond, is there any proof that, there, that this is true? And, you know, for years, my mind immediately went to Bertrand Russell and the Principia Mathematica and Wittgenstein and logic. And, and I would try to answer the question in terms of what I, as a professor of logic and pro- philosophy, thought about it. And that never went anywhere with people. So <laughs> I used to wonder, what is it that people want? When they ask me, do I have, is there any kind of proof of this? And it's not considerations about symbolic logic or Plato or what it is, is most of those people were either had lost a loved one to death or were facing terminal illness themselves or just that midlife curiosity that arises. And so I, you know, what I had, it took me a long time to figure out what it was they were asking for. And I think I finally figured it out. What people want is, is, the question they ask, I think they were really trying to ask is, is it a rational thing to expect with confidence that when we die, there won't be another set of events or another realm? And I say from all my knowledge of philosophy and the 50 plus years of investigating this thing i say yeah it is yep. you know it it is it's a rational thing in 2023 for somebody to look at all this and to say um well you know i gather there's an afterlife and then in the background of that see in my mind <clears throat> the the big logical problems about this an important question that had been framed by Plato and Hume and other great philosophers, uh, that that is satisfied, too. And I'm ready. You know, if somebody wants to challenge me, I'm ready to go. <laughs> but but, what most people want when they're asking for proof is just what I said. And I'm satisfied that the current state of understanding about near-death experiences, its it's that's right. It's a rational thing to expect. I think.
1: Yeah, well, you, I think you've certainly done, you've done it with this book, and you've done it in, as I say, a very conservative way, mm-hmm. much much more conservative view than you needed to be, which is probably the right way to do it. I've always
2: thought, uh, Roberta, that throughout my, since I was a kid, really, um, I've always been the kind, I, I want to think of the objections to something rather than the reasons for it. And the reason is, if you keep trying to knock something down rather than to, to, um, you know, prove it or whatever, then what you come out with is more satisfying in the long run because you've really put it to a severe test. Yeah. And where I've been, as I put it to all the severe tests, and I just give up. I mean, I, I just can't think my way out of the. Statement that to my great Astonishment and Still a little counterintuitive to me But yeah I gather there's an Afterlife
1: well let's start Going down some of these and 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 now Paul's role In all of this um, And and Paul jump in here you You have become good friends, clearly, because you work together on all of these books, and and what what you mainly do is kind of make them pretty, uh, make the language quite easy to read.
0: I think it's a, I think I do more I do more than that. It's a
1: you do a great job of it too. I I do the
0: book I do the book side of it. Raymond does the does the heavy thinking, but uh, you know my idea with the book is to is to condense it and divide it up so it's easy for people to un- to understand and to grasp what we're trying to talk about. And that's yeah. my role with this one. But in, in this one, I took a, a greater role in a lot of ways.
2: Uh, yes. it, Paul did a lot of research on this too. I mean, you know, I mean, just stuff I didn't know about. So this is very much a joint product.
1: Great, but, You know,
0: I mean, Raymond has been working on uh, with this material for over 50 years. I've only been working with it for thirty-three years. Uh, <laughs> that's a lot. And that's when Raymond and I first got together. Uh
2: when when our Oh, I want to correct that because I thought so yesterday when we but now actually it's been thirty-five years wow. since nineteen eighty eight. See, it's been so
0: long and- ago I can't remember when it was. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, we started we started with the book The Light Beyond which was uh, uh, his first, his I guess it was his third book after uh, Life After Life. And and it's a book where we looked at the research that had been done since Life After Life came out. And I, I really expected that that would be my only book in this subject. But I kept finding things that I was interested in, and, and I wanted to pursue it with another book and with another book and another book. And now I've written over a dozen books on, on near-death experiences, and uh, six with Raymond, and a total of uh, five New York Times bestsellers.
1: Well, you, you make the books content-rich, but easy for people to understand who, for whom this is not their field, which is, I know, a very difficult thing to do well.
0: Well, so. it is. And also, you know, you mentioned that they're, they're very conservative books. And, and I appreciate that you notice that because that's our goal is to provide the information to people to make up their own minds. Yep. And they don't need to know how we feel. They need to know how they feel. And that's really what a what a
1: good. Say saying. that again.
0: I, I can't remember what it said. It
1: was profound. They don't need to know how you feel.
0: They don't need to know how we feel. They need to know how they feel.
1: That's very important. You're not trying to to ram it down their throats. You're trying exactly. to give them the information so exactly. they can make up their own minds. That's that's why these books are so great. And you know, but, we we
0: we both believe that rather than a lot of people look at this subject area and they start with disbelief. Yes and they I don't believe this and they when they finish reading it they still don't believe it because that's their mindset. Our goal is to is to have them start with belief and then go wherever they want to go.
2: And and also I think as you know too, Roberta, the very best way for people to be impressed by this or to get the sense of it is to talk to some of their own relatives or friends. Been there. See, that's that's what makes it more real for people. That's why, yeah, that's, you know, that when this information first started coming out, it had its own verification mm-hmm. because uh, anybody, any doctor who cared to ask among his patients with or his or her patients, would quickly find plenty of cases. And
1: that's what happened. But let, let's just dive in here. You start by talking about shared death experiences, which as you define it, I guess, are basically when people are part of a death, they're, they have a loved one involved. They're often, um, and you make that abundantly clear with all the rest of these. They often end up caught in the death, caught up in part as and they co-experience the death with their loved one or with even if they're just a nurse at a bedside. You can't help but become involved in the death. And I think you make that point very powerfully. So you talk about that in the beginning before you even get started. That's not even a reason to believe, but that's what you you're describing all these experiences people have had. Just because they were there at the time. That's quite powerful. It is. And it also
2: kind of knocks the air out of the uh, sort of standard way of arguing about this, which comes to us from the Greeks, actually, Plato and the philosopher Democritus. Today, we call it, it's like some people say, yeah, this is an indicator of an afterlife. Other people say, oh, this is oxygen deprivation to the brain. (laughs) and um and that is such a that argument goes back 2300 years uh, and um and the trouble with it is that it is a very common thing for people at the bedside of the dying who are not themselves ill or injured that as the person in the bed is dying the bystanders themselves have all of these experiences that we know as an as a near-death experience, they may say that as grandma died, I myself got out of my body and I went part way toward this light with her. I, I saw, saw the her
1: transformed um, in her face. I saw this or that. And the, the mist rose. All these things happened. Even if they didn't believe in anything. Well, yeah, that's that's neat.
0: I, I liked what you said earlier, Roberta, that, that they get caught up in the death.
2: Caught up in it. That's just a great phrase.
0: It's a great phrase. We'll be using it from now on. But uh, <laughs> but it's it's nice because they literally are caught up in it. They don't have any idea that this is going to happen. They don't even know what's going. what a shared death experience is, and many don't know what a near-death experience is. And then suddenly they are caught up in it.
1: And they're transformed by it, too. You talk about how they're not the same person when they walk out of that room.
0: No,
2: not at all. That's right.
1: But the first, uh, the first of these these reasons to believe, is out of body experiences, mm-hmm. which I would have certainly chosen, and I think it's a very good because they can happen. Just some people just learn how to do them, and they go off astral traveling yeah. all the time. I, I've known people; they they contact me all the yeah. time and talk about it.
2: It's a very common part of shared death experiences and near-death experiences that people find themselves up above their body mm-hmm. and so on. But it doesn't have to occur just in the context of a death or a no. near-death. It's uh, it, even playing great music. I've known m- musicians who say that while at the height of the music, when they were performing on stage, mm-hmm. they felt themselves lift out of their body and go into this light.
1: Or, they, or you can go to uh, uh, Bob Monroe's uh, um, uh, place and you can learn how to do it on your own. And they teach people how to do it. Yeah. Right. It's like a thing. And,
2: <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. it is something very significant for the nature of human beings. Um, yes. You know, yeah. as people often talk about you can't really draw a logical inference from uh, uh, a logical inference. Uh, from all this to the fact that there's an afterlife. But there's one inference you can absolutely make, which I can't can't find any hole in this Mm -hmm. argument, and it has to do with these life reviews. People say that during their near-death experience, everything else kind of disappears, and they're surrounded by a, a videogram or a hologram panorama of everything they've ever done. Time stands still and they see everything they've ever done from the point of view of others. And what that means, Robert, and this is an ironclad inference. That at least for some of us, life is a two-phase process. We lead it forward as the protagonist or actor. Time stands still. There's a 180 degree whirl around. And we, we were at we re- rewritten this, everything and we've done, not only from our perspective, but the perspective of those with whom we've interacted.
1: Yes, that's huge. I agree. That's huge. But out-of-body experiences, too, the very fact that we can have them, we can be in a room, our body's in a room, often asleep, and we're out. You know would having an experience sure. as just as a pure mind, the fact that that separation can happen and can happen even separately at will if you go through the Monroe process that to me is huge. the fact that you chose that. It's huge because it, you know, they're they're right now. Um, one of the I just did a blog post about how they're they're they 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 call it the hard problem of science because how, how is it that uh, the brain produces consciousness? Well, clearly it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs>
2: That's what I think. It's um the doctrine that that um that consciousness is generated by the brain. It's ridiculous. Is the doctrine of called epiphenomenalism, and it's not a scientific right. doctrine because how are you going to verify it? It's a philosophical question right. or theory, and it's on the other hand, you can say, well, the consciousness is generated by the uh, the brain. It's, that's what some say, but others say, no, the appearance of the body is generated by the mind. Yeah,
1: there's another interesting problem too, which is if people are born. Blind. If people are born without eyeballs and during a near-death experience, they can see. Yeah. That's kind of huge, don't you think?
2: It's enormous. It is. <laughs> They also say though it's not like vision we're having right no. now is greatly amplified. People say some. I've heard people say you have telescopic vision. It's like you can think of something over in the corner of the room and zap, you're there. It's 360
1: or, degrees um, as
2: well. And the color, the colors that you aren't yeah. here are there.
1: All quite amazing. But but that's your that's your first reason um, to, to believe that life continues, and I think that's kind of huge. Your second is precognitive experiences. Which I think is another biggie. Talk about that one.
2: Yeah. Paul has really has thought that more on that than
1: I
0: a precog experience is when a person unexpectedly sees in this case the death of another person or has foreknowledge of a paranormal kind, uh, that they know something's going to happen or that something has happened. And what we point to here is uh, uh, apparitions of, of, okay, apparitions of people who see family members or friends die or know they've passed away halfway around the world. There was never any indication that they were even ill, but they'll appear to somebody, uh, they'll appear to their friend, and they'll say, I'm going to die today, or I have died and it turns out that they have died. That's a precognitive experience. But there's other, there's all kinds of other types too. I, I worked on one, uh, a woman named Olga Gearhart in San Diego. right? And, and she uh, uh, was having a heart transplant. And so her entire family showed up. She was Hispanic and she had a large and loving family. They all showed up at the hospital and they sat in the waiting room and waited for her to get her, get her heart transplant. Everyone was there in the family except the son-in-law. The son-in-law couldn't stand to be in a hospital. So he uh, he went home and went to bed. And while he was asleep, she was having difficulty with the heart transplant. The heart kept stopping, they had to keep starting it. This went on for a long period of time. and The doctors were telling this to the family members. He woke up at about, I believe it was three in the morning and Olga was standing at the foot of his bed. And she said, uh, uh, "Tell everybody I'm okay. That I've had some trouble here, but I'm going to be all right." And so he got dressed. He drove down to the hospital. He told everybody what had happened and what she had said. So later on, when they went into her operating into her uh, her room after she achieved stability with her heart, the first thing she said was to her son-in-law. She said, "Juan, I saw you." I went and talked to you at three in the morning, and I told you that I was going to be okay. So, wow. in a lot of ways, this is kind of a double shared experience, you know, by the uh, the recipient as well as the the uh, uh, the person who's having the operation. And that's this—that's the nature of a precognitive experience,
1: which is pretty amazing. I thought that was an amazing story. Yeah, you had that. It is amazing amazing wow. Story.
0: Yeah. But there's a number of cases we drew on on uh, research in from the 19th century. These these by the way, these type of paranormal experiences have been researched for hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years. And what we did with this book is we pulled them together and kind of uh, presented them in a 21st century way. So the some of the ones we we uh, examined from the 19th century were two sisters. I believe there were sisters there, let's say they were cousins, who who both at the same time, the same day, dreamed that that their uh another member of their family who was in China, these these women were in England, uh, dreamed that that he had died, and he appeared to them and said he had died. And they were both afraid, you know, that they that he had died. Communications weren't weren't good in those days and they both received letters from the government agency that he was working for saying that he had died on that day unexpectedly and and so the researchers pulled on that on those letters to show that they had indeed had precognitive uh uh, con- uh connection with this guy so yeah it's uh it's amazing i i find i think that's one of the more common maybe raymond could jump in on that but I think precognitive experiences of that kind, uh, sensing that someone else has died, perhaps a loved one, are fairly common.
2: That is common, and I hear it all the time, and it happened to me oh. in uh, 1970 when I lost my first child, but uh, 24 uh, the two nights before it happened my wife and I both awoke from the same dream that we were losing the oh, baby. Yeah.
1: That was in the book. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my.
2: And, uh and, and, you know, it, and then one day later it happened just as in the dream. And, and, you know, I hear this and I know you hear this all the time too. From, this is just part and parcel of the, of, of life right. that, and, and what this deals with is see, it's, I remember when I was uh, 18 years old, I read a great uh, philosophical article by a guy named uh, Mac Taggart, and the title of, it's a famous philosophical article, Is Time Real? And he gave arguments for why actually time is not real. And, um, now my wife is incredibly brilliant. I mean, just her IQ is astronomical. And fortunately for me, she's not intellectual. Okay. What would that have been like? Right. <laughs> but she was an art. She went to art school. She studied the fashion and color was her thing. And, uh, and so she's just not intellectual, but, but very brilliant. And now oh, maybe five or six years ago, we were. She was standing in the living room. I look. Remember this look on her face, and she was like she was gazing into a great distance. And she said, "Time is not real," <laughs> and and you know, and people realize that the older they get, they were pretty like, this clear. Make, I make. think it is. Yes. Weird. And, and you know, people who go over to the other side say, I, I, Evan Alexander, aren't sure you know, the neurosurgeon, uh, is a friend of mine who had a near-death experience. And Evan, I mean, you know, speaking of brilliance, okay, <laughs> and uh, e- Evan was a professor of neurosurgery at Harvard, I think, for 14 years. And he's just, you know, beyond brilliant. And uh, he had a near-death experience and just this horrific infection he got and i asked evan i said evan here in this world the axes by which we orient ourselves are uh, time and space but people who have near-death experience said there's no more time and space so i said well what are the orienting axes and he said love and knowledge and that's pretty much what everybody.
1: Yeah, says. I, I,
2: that's that's true. Real.
1: That that actually objectively is true. But while we're here, unfortunately, people do make appointments in, in a yeah. certain place for a certain time, and we're kind of stuck with that if we want to have lives lived here. That's the only- you
2: know, Roberta, our our subculture that we're in, um, it's it's just. Uh, uh, too bad that you know it 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 doesn't um, the way it it treats the the what we regarded as as our our uh, adversaries in this are the skeptics. <laughs> And that's just too bad because those so-called skeptics have no idea what they're talking about. They don't even know what the word
1: it is. It is a problem. And, uh, yeah. and but we will overcome it. We are uh, your your book will help to overcome it because it's a great bridge well, between people who are clueless and and a wealth of additional information which fits neatly and ties to your book. That's part of what I love about your book, because it it's sort of, this is this is beginner knowledge, which people can then bridge to, to more knowledge. I just love that.
2: Paul and I both, you know, have noticed in the last few years, especially since the COVID thing, you think about um, um, over a million Americans died from COVID. And uh, you think of all the grief that brought about in the people who were left behind and then coupled with that all these young people coming in younger people coming into midlife where it's natural to just want to know about yes so that was kind of what we had in mind while we were writing this book that is just this vast number of people out there now who really haven't been exposed to this material or anything and yet, are in some kind of need for it.
1: Well, let's make sure we can finish this because we're 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 coming toward not yet, but almost toward the end of our time. The third was the transforming light. Let's briefly talk about that because I want to get to terminal lucidity, which you talk a lot about.
0: Okay, people uh, are transformed by the light. They they literally they literally are. I mean, uh, when they have a near death experience and they see the light, uh, it's one of the most preeminent things in the near-death experience for them, and uh, it, ch- it changes them in such a way that everybody notices it, and that's the shared aspect of this, is that everybody sees after someone has had a near-death experience, they're not the same person that they were before. Right. Uh, I was involved in a study one time, a transformation study, was called, done in Seattle, and what the finding of this study, which was uh, examined four hundred people who had had near-death experiences, compared them to the normal, po- the regular population who hadn't had near-death experiences. Uh, they found that there was n- number one a decrease in death anxiety, is that they no longer had the the fear of death that that they did before they had had, uh, had their trans, before they'd had contact with the light, is what it was. They had a higher zest for living, which we defined as being type A without the anger.
1: (laughs) Type A without the anger is beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, I love that.
0: Uh, They had a higher intelligence, and once again, that may be because they. There's a lot of other explanations for it, but it might just be the simple act of being exposed to a, uh, a supernatural world that we're all in. And, and things are more accessible, uh, when you've had a near death experience. I, I believe this. I don't know if you do, Raymond. They're more accessible as far as ed- education and knowledge goes than they were before. They're more open. They're more open to this. That's right. The other thing, which I found the most interesting was that, uh, they have an increase in psychic abilities that people who have near death experiences have four times as many verifiable psychic experiences as people who have not had near-death experiences and and these are all transforming aspects of a near-death experience that are visible to other people uh the the, that's the good part of it there's a, a sort of a bad part of it that it changes them so much that uh i i think they have a higher uh a higher rate of divorce you know they're no longer the same person that uh, you know, that Jane married, and uh, uh, that gets in the way of their relationship. People don't know how to re- relate to them. We've even we even had CEOs who had to leave their job because they were no longer the angry person that they were before they had mm-hmm. their death experience, and they yeah. uh, they realized that they ruled by anger as opposed through uh, ruling by sensibilities. So that's. That, that's transformation.
1: And that's surprising, actually. It, it is, it is a, I, I think that, uh, I remember reading that part of your book and I think that, uh, uh, fear of death was reduced by more than 50% for, for something to do that. Yes. Uh, is, is right. It's quite remarkable because fear is a very persistent emotion, uh, especially in midlife like that. And it frees you up to think about other things. Yes. And to focus on <laughs> How it. amazing. Yes.
2: Yeah.
1: Now, reason number four, terminal lucidity, which I think is a profound, profound thing. I mean, the fact that people whose brains are literally mush are now able to suddenly, they were in a coma, Sometimes in some cases, yeah. they can suddenly sit up in bed, talk normally. In some cases, walk around the room, right. and there is no scientific explanation for this. This is pretty amazing. And you have a ve- you talk a lot about terminal lucidity. You have, I loved that chapter. Let's talk about that just for a few minutes. I think that's just
0: wonderful. I mean, let me tell a story, and then Raymond then Raymond has a really good twist on all this. I think with Fay as opposed to TL.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, totally. people who, you know, who are listening to this, listening to me talk now, uh, who have, there will be many of the folks listening to us who've been there and seen it themselves. And, and they will say, yeah, people who have not seen this themselves are very likely to think that we're disturbed and lost their mind because it's <laughs> hard to believe. It's like what happens is that people, it's, Grandma has been in, in the hospital for six weeks, obtunded. No, no response. Everybody's just sitting around the bed waiting for her to die. And suddenly she sits up. And if you see this, it sounds so crazy, but yeah, they have a light. It's like a clear light, not from a light bulb or from the sun, but this light. And they're completely coherent. They go around the room. They tell everybody in the room, give everybody a message.
1: They remember the name of their dog. They did all this stuff. Suddenly, they have suddenly they're themselves again.
2: Yeah, and it's astonishing to watch. I, I knew this guy who was a, a um, oncologist and he was telling me about a case of this where he had been treated the treating this guy for a long time and the guy died and and so they covered him up in the bed and the family was standing around the bed and all of a sudden the sheet started rustling and the man <laughs> sat up and, and talked a long time and then and then he just scaled over and died and and the the, the oncologist said to me he said you know raymond if, if those other people hadn't been there, he said, I would have concluded I was having a hallucination. It's just that bizarre. I mean, it, to look at, but inspiring, too. It's just astonishing when you see that. Yeah. I love and it. it. And the
0: typical path of, of terminal lucidity is that someone who might be in the, the last throes of dementia, for instance, uh, is suddenly awakens and has... A, a pure lucidity in a way they remember you know years ago they remember other relatives they talk to individuals as we've just said about different things in their current life and and then everyone on, on say thinks, you know grandpa's all right uh you know he's going to be normal now and they want to take them out of the hospital or they start to think that they're normal and then they end up dying And they tend to die within, uh, I think it's within two days at least, but it's generally much shorter than that. It's generally a few hours.
1: Yeah.
2: You know. uh. I had a, before there was any publicity about near-death experiences, I was working on a geriatric psychiatry Mm -hmm. ward with demented people. And uh, there was this patient there who had uh, been a, aircraft mechanic for the now defunct eastern airlines and he had de- developed dementia and he was there on the ward and he was suffering what we call the term the uh, occupational delirium people are de- de- uh, demented will go back to their employment and act it out but just one day he came and he he grabbed me by the shoulders looked deeply into my eyes and he said tunnel light just like that <laughs> and i i always kind of felt that he must have been having such an experience while he was demented i gather man, i don't mm-hmm. know what else to think about that it was extraordinary i mean, that look in his eyes was just astonishing
1: <laughs> it's, kind of wow. a,
2: it's
0: kind of a curtain call uh, you get one more chance to say what you want and and that's what it is. i think it's a very common experience
2: and, and it is it's just very and now common that
0: people read that people read this they'll say i have seen terminal lucidity
2: before. that's yeah. right that's right and and it sounds extraordinary in 2023 if we if we went back to 1890 Everybody knew about it. Yeah. When people died in home rather than in the hospital, which started in the 30s, everybody knew of this phenomenon. They called it then Fay, F-E-Y. If you look in the Oxford English Dictionary, it is a, sta- a, a state of heightened and enhanced consciousness, just portending imminent death and so everybody knew about it because people died at home but then we forgot about it when people started dying the hospitals but now it's coming back into common yeah
1: of course it's yeah. perfectly normal I, I think it's what happens as you as your energy body is naturally separating from your physical body and therefore once your energy mind is separated from your trash completely trashed brain That's naturally normal again for a very brief period of time. I think that's all it is. But it is funny and kind of amazing all the same. I just love it. Mm -hmm. But let's let's talk about um, reason number five, the spontaneous muses, healings, and skills, which is a lot more common than people realize Mm -hmm. following a near-death experience.
0: Well, tell her about Tony, Socorro.
2: Oh, yeah, uh, music. Okay. Yeah, yeah, this is uh, a great story. Put, put, yeah, tell that. Yeah. Putting this in context, this is in Western thought. From the very beginning because plato talks about this it it's like it how people just before they die even if they've never had any interest whatsoever in music or poetry will suddenly start reciting poetry or making up poetry on the spot or singing in my very limited social network as a social phobic person uh and i don't really i mean I, i'm not really very social but in my limited circle two people in my circle sang themselves out when they died i mean it just sang out and and it happens and what in the world does that mean so about now uh Dr. Anthony chicoria is this wonderful man who has a PhD in physiology, an MD, an orthopedic surgeon, and a professor of orthopedic surgery at NYU, who in 1994 was struck in the neck by a bolt of lightning, had a cardiac arrest, was resuscitated by a nurse on the spot, but out of, out of his body went through this resort center where his family was having a Family reunion and said, you know, he said, this is more real than this ordinary waking reality. All right. Now, after he got back, Anthony, who had never had any interest in music, suddenly developed a fascination with the piano and started having a recurrent dream. In which he was um, performing the same piece of music on the stage, and he learned how to transcribe music to transcribe the piece, and then learned how to play the piano. And now, in addition to being an orthopedic surgeon, is a concert pianist. <laughs> see, and Roberta, in the consensual reality we live in, that doesn't.
1: Fit. <laughs> no, not at so, all.
2: That is something from elsewhere. And, and there's just many of them. I, I know, I knew this woman in uh, Toronto years ago was in her seventies who came to one of my lectures with her little zipper thing that artists use to show me her paintings, which were award winning, but she had never had any interest in art until she had her near death experience. So it's, um, this can bring about creativity, uh, it, experiences as well it's uh, it seems to open up people's uh creative heart yeah in any case.
1: it's quite a it's quite amazing it truly is
0: and and then there's i'll make this quick because i know you're in a rush but uh there's also uh dr rajiv party who's a uh, an anesthesiologist uh, a heart anesthesiologist where he takes care of people who are having heart surgery. It's a very delicate form of anesthesia. Anyway, he uh, he had a, an infection that led to a near-death experience. And when he came out of his extraordinary near-death experience, by the way, when he came out of it, uh, he was left with two angels. Gabriel was one, and uh, Michael's the other. Uh, Gabriel and Raphael. And uh, he's left with these two angels who now... When he does his meditation, he they counsel him. They come to him and counsel him. And they told him to quit anesthesia, quit being an anesthesiologist, and start practicing consciousness-based healing. And he had never heard of consciousness-based healing, and they wouldn't give him much of a clue as to what it was. Uh, they said, it's a, you have to search for it and find out what consciousness based healing is so he did he left his profession as an anesthesiologist and he started uh searching for the meaning of consciousness based healing what he decided was is that what society needs the most is addiction counseling and so he is now working on a on a pro, uh on a uh, his his own practice of uh addiction based healing
2: And that's a remarkable story, Paul, when you think of the fact that an anesthesiologist, his object is to keep his patients unconscious. (laughs) But I think in his... his, Who said God does not
1: have a sense of humor?
2: (laughs) It is funny, though. He also had a pain clinic. He
0: also had a pain clinic with a number of other doctors, and they were seeing the other side of of, uh, pain pills and opioids. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So he wanted no oh. more of that.
1: But we have just literally like two minutes left. So I, w- I wonder if we, we we also have two more reasons to go through, which if we don't talk about them on the air, that's going to make people so curious they're going to have to absolutely have to buy the book. So I think we, we ought to sort of save these. And then also then you'll have to come back for another visit. And that maybe is another good reason to save them, because I would love to have you back. I think this has been so much fun. Sure. Anytime,
2: Robert. I, yeah.
1: I don't think I've ever laughed so much with any guests that I've laughed <laughs> with the two of you. What What do you want people to take away from our conversation, Raymond? And and, and also, I, I also want, Paul, for you to tell me that as well.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the the reason I was enthused about working on this book is that I just see, because of my profession, people are coming to me all the time of loss of a loved one. And and I lost my first child in 1970, and it's still not over. Oh, it. Sure. And so, you know, in your 79, you just get into this phase where I'm finished with Raymond Moody. You know, and I thought about this book as a way of uh, helping all those. I know millions of people out there who are going through grief or uh, who are entering into that midlife phase where people naturally begin to wonder about the fate of the soul at death and so on. So it's my kind of attitude toward it is public service. I think this, uh, and so uh, in those terms, thanks so much to all the folks listening in to us today, too.
1: Wonderfully said. What about you, Paul? Well,
0: I don't think it's realistic to tell people that they shouldn't have a fear of death. I think that's a very natural thing to fear. But instead, I think we should tell them to study the literature that indicates their survival of bodily death. That that all around you in any setting, there's near-death experiences and shared death experiences, and they can talk to people about that and hear their stories live as well. It's hard to figure out a way to bring up the subject, but I've done it before. I, I did a Denny's experiment where I was in a Denny's restaurant, and uh, and it was late at night, and we were kind of arguing at the table about whether or not there was survival of bodily death or not. So I stood up in the in the restaurant. Uh, nobody shot me, and and I and I said this. I told them what we were talking about and asked if anyone had had any experience with near-death experiences. Fifteen of the twenty people had. They had either had one themselves, or they had seen one in their family. Many of them didn't know what the definition of it was, or what the name was, but they had had these experiences. I think that's really a good way to gain knowledge. But, uh you know, fear is just often a lack of knowledge. So, ultimately, I just tell them to... Don't fear education, that education is really your friend.
1: Education is your friend, beautifully said. Well, it, it has been such a thrill. I, we will have you back again if you're willing to put up us again, because this has been so much fun. Meanwhile, so thank you very much for being here thank you for
0: having us Roberta it's wonderful <laughs> you did
2: and thanks again to the folks listening in too
1: this has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes I'm very glad you could be with us today please never forget that you are a powerful eternal being you never began and you never will end and when you get that It changes everything for the better. Next week, we're going to be talking with Coot Blackson. And those of you who have heard him before know that you're going to want to hear him again. So please be with us next week. And this that's all the time we have for today. So please, please be with us next week again. And no, meanwhile. That this has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes, and please enjoy and make the most of this coming week in our one reality, always, always knowing every moment of your life and for eternity that you are a powerful, eternal being. You, most of all in this entire universe, you are infinitely and eternally loved.
0: You've been listening to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Roberta blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. Join us every week as we explore what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about the one reality we all share. Knowing the truth changes everything. Calling all authors. Have you been considering an audiobook? Well, look no further.